We're going to go ahead and get started whether you're in here or not, whether you're seated or not. Um, one of the problems I always have when I teach is I have way more material than I have time. And I can either, there's only two strategies come to mind is, one, I can talk faster and I can't do that, or I can talk without breathing and I can't do that. But the other thing I could do is start at 9.30, so I'm going to do that. That's what we're going to do. So this question, this question, why are you a Christian, is not the driving question for this class. Um, however, what we discuss in this class actually relates to this question. Uh, the, if you read the bulletin, the topic, uh, the topic we're going to discuss is the Bible. And that directly relates to what are you a Christian? So out of the many answers you can have about why are you a Christian, I mean, there's a, literally a, a huge number of answers to that question. We're going to look at just two real briefly because it's going to set the, set the tone. But first I want to tell you about a book that I just read. Uh, a week and a half or so ago, um, my brother and his wife recommended this book to us. Uh, Andrew played in The Great Good Thing. The subtitle is A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. Clavin's well known for his fiction, yet this book is autobiographical. It's unlike any other conversion story I've ever read. And it definitely answers the question, why am I a Christian? At least from his, from his viewpoint. So I recommend it to you not only on its own merits, but because he touches on ideas and things that we're going to be touching on in this class over the next five weeks. There are three sentences in and then it caught my eye right off the bat. He says, anyway, God is not susceptible to proofs and disproofs. If you believe, the evidence is all around you. If you don't believe, no evidence can be enough. That's, that's just kind of a, a good takeaway, good takeaway right there. So two answers that really kind of set the tone. Why are, why are you a Christian? This is just, this is just me. Okay. First one is Christianity is intellectually robust and opens itself to our scrutiny. And the second answer might be Christianity is existentially satisfying. Now at this point, you might be saying, say what, what, what exactly, what do you mean by that? Well, the first one, a loose translation is, it makes sense. And the second one, it's real in our, in our experience. When I first taught a class on the Bible, kind of like this, it was 40 years ago, uh, here at Southside in the auditorium. And we discussed not only how we got the Bible, but we talked about the Bible's truthfulness, reliability, sufficiency, inspiration, inerrancy, and so forth. But our culture is different. Than it was 40 years ago. Our convictions about things are seem to be less certain in some ways because of the erosive, corrosive environment in which we live. I think we need to reassure one another that there's no better life than the one in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do in this class. Everybody sees yard signs, right? And they've changed over the years. 
They signal, they challenge, they question, they encourage. These are only a few of the yard signs you and I have seen out there. Now, what do we as Christians observe when we see these yard signs? For me, there's a couple of things. One is God is conspicuously absent from these signs. These, these signs have kind of slogan little phrases that define really, I think, a secular creed. But, having said that, we notice that so many of these yard signs are grounded in soil that is unmistakably Christian. So all these things, all these things are true. We, males and females, were created by God. We matter to Him and to His Son, Jesus. It expresses itself in love. God's defining characteristic. The Bible clearly spells out God's concern for the downcast, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged. Jesus calls to us all from every nation, tribe, and language. So here is the question. How do we learn to read the signs of the times that make sense at all? And who can help us? Well, it's not Ghostbusters. It is the Adult Education Committee. <laughs> so, the, so the committee is made up of Kevin Wilson, Ron Mayer, David White, Tom and South Long Hedman, and uh, Tony and Terry Neely. They are all about equipping us to disciple the nations as well as our neighborhoods. They want us to be able to lead, engage, discuss, and live out gospel truths. So they've launched a new series that'll take us well into mid-2024. But here's a public service announcement. They need us. They want to know what we would like to study together. So as we go through this class, I'm going to give you some real obvious prompts. As we go through this class, make notes. Uh, you're on your phone, reminders and notes. Write it down on a piece of paper. Write it down on the back of your hand. Make them a point to tell the adult ed, yes, I'd like to hear a class on that. And I know just the person to do it, the guy sitting next to me, or whatever, whatever. Okay, so how many just heard this message? Raise your hand if you just heard this message. If you understood what I just said, raise your hand. Raise your hand. How many are going to talk to the adult ed committee? Raise your hand. That's all the same hand. <laughs> so, for instance, addressing the secular creed like, like bumper stickers and yard signs would be a kind of a cool discussion class for four weeks downstairs. I mean, you know, kind of, kind of that. That, that interface, that interface between Christianity and the world. This series already has a number of topics that uh, Adult Ed is launching. Uh, now there is a constellation. This is almost breathtaking in its scope. And you'll notice right away, these are really doctrines. They are a distillation of what the Bible, what God has to say in the Bible about certain topics. So, you, so there's some real thematic things going on here. 
There's also going to be some textual studies. So in a sense, the series got started when Kevin led us through Luke. That's when it got started. And as people come in with uh, willing to volunteer for textual studies, those will be interspersed in these topical studies. So when Kevin sent out an email in January saying, hey guys, here's some topics uh, we need to have you teach uh, several weeks on these. Uh, tell me what you'd like. I immediately responded, give me the Bible. Give me the Bible. Okay, give me the Bible. And Kevin's like, great, okay, you got it. And I was thinking to myself, this is wonderful, glad I jumped in early. I mean, this is wonderful. I can say all kinds of glorious things about the Bible. And then it occurred to me, uh, maybe they want something specific. So I went back and I said, uh, what did exactly were you kind of thinking? And he said, the Bible, before I get too far ahead of myself. And this is what they want. This was in January. The very first item prompted me to think about the social context in which we live. And the Bible is not simply being attacked as it is before, but it's being broadly dismissed as being irrelevant. In fact, the pushback from the culture and society isn't just against the Bible, it's against Christians. Why? Because we're inextricably connected. However, we're going to make the Bible our focus on this class. The larger topic, again, of being a Christian in this culture is, would be a great carve-out for, for another class. So, I spent about a month thinking about and starting to do some reading about this whole topic, given these three objectives. In talking with Kevin, he emphasized the word relevance. Our relevance has to do with how we relate uh, the, once again, an interface, an interface. So, with only five sessions, I felt like I needed to be selective and do a good job on what we could do. So, I thought, well, the first one is going to be a mouthful right there. So, we're going to zero in on the first question, and we're just going to give a passing nod, kind of ignore the next two for some other teacher some other time. A matter of fact, how we got the Bible could be the eight-week class all on its own. There's another nature for that. Everybody got it? You're kind of, kind of going with it? You see? Somebody tells Kevin that. Okay, so here's my strategy. My strategy is to uh, develop questions that society seems to ask and then answer those questions that have to do with the Bible. What are the current questions out there? Uh, any one of these questions and answers could be a class on its own, but even at that, even at that, there's a lot to cover. Some of these questions have been around in some form forever. They're persistent questions. However, there's new questions based upon the culture we live in. They reflect our common space, so we're going to ask and answer those. Now, those of you who know me know I am not so hot at leading a discussion class. This is the discussion class. However, if you have something you just got to say, raise your hand and say it. That'll be a-okay. If I hear you. 
My wife says I need to go see the audiologist. I think it's selective hearing, so. <laughs> okay. So all the teachers, all the teachers in these classes talk about the material they're going to use. So I need to do that. I need to take. First thing, first thing is I uh, reference books. Well, I've got a lot of books. I mean, all that is Bible reference material in our library. But never, never do a project at home without buying a new tool. And never teach a class without buying a new book. So since January, I bought, I bought and read those books. But um, I'm not going to recommend any particular book to you. I've kind of made that mistake before, and people said, oh, that book didn't do anything for me. And so, but what I would like to recommend is this. So I'm going to pass this around. This, believe it or not, I did not use this as a resource for this class, but it is the best one I bought, $4.99 from Amazon, from Rose Publishing, laminated pamphlet. Some of you will be immediately drawn to the thickness of this. <laughs> <laughs> and when you go to Amazon, they have a companion, which is the other title. Interestingly, when I went back to my purchase screen about buying this for $4.99, it said, you have the Kindle version for zero because you bought, the, bought this hard copy. So when I open the Kindle version, it actually has a merge of those both titles in the Kindle version. But pass this around and take a look at it. If you were going to buy one book that has something to do with this class, that would be the one. And it's a, it's a good giveaway. It's it, it's very it's very good. Okay. Everybody got that? When it gets back around, just put it back up here. I also started reading articles. I like reading articles. Authors and books cannot keep up with swiftly changing culture. You just can't do it. So I, li I literally read dozens and dozens of articles, and I, and I saved in the Dropbox folder I made between 80 and 90 articles that I thought were good, and I, used, I read those and dissected those. So there's a bunch. The problem is that in my brain is this tangled mass of stuff. My job is to give you sort of a linear, coherent, pertinent message. So if it doesn't sound very linear and wonderful, that's my problem. I mean, you know, the information's out there. So just, just give me, cover me a little slack on that. Okay, what we're going to do for the rest of today is just create some context. Questions start next week. There were some things that were just on me that said uh, they have got to be out there as context, as foundations for the rest to the next four weeks. So we're going to look at uh, six distinct points that create a foundation for the weeks that come along. So I'll just call them six points. The first one is people hate Christians. There are, the bookshelves and internet sites are full of reasons for dismissing, disrespecting, canceling Christians in their Bible. Well, let's look at several. And let's divide them into good reasons and bad reasons that people hate Christians. The first one happens to be a good reason. Moral integrity sometimes annoys people. When we hold strong beliefs we learn from the Bible and we're able 
to articulate them well, and we evidence a commitment to live by them, that creates a real disturbance in the force. And that, that disturbance isn't always possible. I mean, we are called hateful, we're called regressive, we're called uneducated, unintelligent for holding on to biblical beliefs. But, so be it. I mean, I'm not planning on changing. The second reason people hate Christians, you might say, is a bad reason. It is that I have known Christians who can be judgmental. Have you ever met any? And there tends to be a, a distinct flavor of arrogance where, they, where there's a looking down upon. And guess what? People can sense that. And they don't like it. And rightfully so, I think so. That is just not our posture. It's a third reason which I think could fall in the category of good reason is contentment and confidence makes some people just feel uneasy. Now we really ought to uh, look at Paul. Uh, based upon this, I, I think it's clear that Paul isn't just talking about food, shelter, and clothing. He's just not talking about physical well-being, contentment from that. Uh, I think if, you, if we were to ask him, the contentment has to do with all that's going on, all that's going on in this life. Christians ought to be some of the most inwardly peaceful plant people on the planet. Once this unshakable confidence takes root in your heart, it begins to seep out of you. And people notice some people might wonder if you're really for real. They might wonder if you're clueless about really what's going on. I mean, don't you know how dark the world is? How can you be so devoid of cynicism? And so people get frustrated with it because they can't figure out what makes us tick. Your confidence makes them feel insecure. Your contentment makes them feel confused maybe even Indians, sometimes they lash out because they don't like what they're seeing in themselves. And I think we need to recognize that. Everybody that, that seems to be giving us some pushback is not necessarily hateful. They're just something else. And there's a, I think there's an open door there. A bad reason. Christians can be uh, weird. We have our own language, lingo, music. We may tend to isolate ourselves. Uh, a phrase a number of years ago was holy huddles. We become more and more bizarre to believers, uh, unbelievers around us if, if they see us. In order for neighbors, co-workers, to begin to love us, and, and so we hope Jesus, they need to know us. And so we, we have got to explore ways in which we can relate to them on their terms and invite them into our lives. We've, just got, we've got to do that. We're not going to be contaminated by relating to people 
in our circles of influence. And that's, that's when we break down barriers and give people an opportunity to see who Jesus really is. Here's a good reason. Christians stand up for the protection of the weak and vulnerable, including the unborn. In today's culture, standing for the rights of unborn children can lead to a large sector of the population hating you. Anytime we stand up for the weak and vulnerable, we're doing the work of Jesus. Try as you might, stating your position lovingly and logically, some people won't listen. You already know that. Really, until, and somebody said this, maybe, maybe Barrett said this in a sermon just a few weeks ago, but I heard it right here in this building. Until these people have an encounter with Jesus, we just need to be patient with the hateful things that are said about us when we're standing up for what we know to be true. We just need to be patient. A bad reason. Close right out of that. Christians can act hateful. Standing up for what is good and true is noble, but shouting and insulting and disrespecting others is distasteful at the very least. People can tell what our message ought to be when we disagree is, I love you even though I think you are deeply wrong. Without love, we're not any better than the ones who hate us. Here's the best reason. From uh, Daniel chapter 6, the only thing these guys plotting against Daniel could think to use against him was his devotion to God. That's the only thing they could think of. In every other aspect of life, he was unassailable. There was no way they could bring him down. So, may the same thing be said of us. We don't want to set any unnecessarily stumbling blocks to the good news of Jesus. We don't want to get in the way. Okay. Second point. We could spend five weeks, some of you would be riveted. We could spend five weeks talking about the social research, research that's done about Christians and reading the Bible and all that. Fascinating stuff. But I could tell a lot of you do not want to spend five weeks doing that. So I decided to mush it into one slide. And it's, I've broken every rule about uh, uh, reading and drawing conclusions from mush, from mashed up data. But that's okay. It's like I've made, I stuffed it all in a blender and I made a smoothie for you. <laughs> Here's the first one. There are innumerable articles talking about this. People who regularly and often, so some people, oh yeah, I regularly read the Bible once a quarter. Yeah, or whatever. Regularly and often show significantly higher levels and I just picked these out of a number of studies, hope, gratitude, and forgiveness. That is huge. You want hope, gratitude, and forgiveness? Read the Bible regularly. It's, it, there is. The second thing is a very, very strong correlation. Now, you know the difference between correlations and cause and effect. Correlations, I mean, this is like a chicken and egg thing. But this correlation demands that we uh, consider it. 
Those who often read the Bible have the highest scores in their beliefs about its authority and trustworthiness. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in the next several weeks. But that's important. In other words, those it, some, some of the demographic data were some of the least educated people that respond to surveys or that have been surveyed, but who are passionate readers and hearers of the word had the highest levels of confidence in the Bible as the word of God. Just remember this. Third thing, true spirituality does not come by come to church and doing stuff. However, However, those who actively participate in services and activities, that was kind of a, in many studies, that was kind of a demographic background. Tell us who you are. And who often read the Bible score highest in marriage, success, mental and physical health, and personal well-being. When I was talking with Kevin, and I was kind of laying out kind of where I was thinking I was going, he recommended this book to me, so I bought it. Back in the early 2000s, Willow Creek uh, commissioned a study, and they started first with their congregation, and then they expanded it to a thousand congregations, looking at what is it that contributes most to spiritual formation. They thought they were on track because they had so many people showing up, and contributions were great. Turned out when they did, when they finally got the survey instrument uh, finished, and and data came in, they were way off. So the first part of the book, their first part of the book is they actually, from the data, draw some conclusions and then comment on the conclusion. Then the whole latter two-thirds of the book is, so what do you do about the data? What, what, what's our margin? What do we need to do? There was nothing that jumped out to me any greater than this statement. Thousand churches. Nothing has a greater impact on spiritual growth than reflection on Scripture. Amazing. Amazing. So what did they have to say about it? Here's what they say. They churches, I've just typed it right out. Churches could do only one thing to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow in their relationship with Christ. The choice is clear. They would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the Bible, specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their lives. Let me just say this. I read a really interesting article um, that reflected once again some research. What is the difference between Catholics who read the Bible and Protestants who read the Bible? In general, as a gross generalization, Protestants who read the Bible are looking to find answers from the Bible. How should I live? How should I, how should I do this? You know, what, what, what's my life supposed to look like? Catholics, as Catholics are being encouraged to read the Bible, Catholics who read the Bible Read it for worship. The numbers say most churches are missing the mark because only one out of five congregants reflects on Scripture every day. Just something. Okay, third point. We live in an age 
that I'll just call double literacy laws. I mean, I'm just kind of clumping stuff together here just to make it useful. The first one is a loss of biblical literacy. Out on the street, Noah's Ark, Joseph and the coat of many colors, Samson and Delilah, David and Goliath, walking on the water, parable of building rock on of building on rock or sand. Those those metaphors, those stories have always been out there. Are they still out there? Not anymore. It is not unusual, particularly with young people, it is not unusual to find when a text is given to look up, the first place they go is the table of contents. I taught a high school class a number of years ago. It's, it's been, matter of fact, the leak girls were in the class. That's how, that's how long ago it was. And I said, uh, we're going to be working out of a text out of 1 Samuel. And a hand went up from a student. He said, is that Old Testament or New? That's, it, it's not gotten any better. It's not gotten any better. But not just biblical literacy. How about literacy in general? I think Ron may have mentioned this. Uh, in his class, this kind of data, this kind of class, this kind of data is just stunning to me. How many people don't read after high school? They don't even read after college. Uh, people don't buy books. They don't go to bookstores. Families don't buy books and read books. That is stunning. So what does this tell us? It tells us people don't read books. That's one thing it tells us. But they do read. People do read. Brad East kind of pulled together some research and he said this, teenagers and 20-somethings today by and large are not readers of books. Already said that. They read endlessly though. They read in 5 to 15 second glops of time. And then the next swipe or the next page they're, they're on to the next thing. Minds that are trained this way lack the stamina and certainly the desire to read books, longer texts. I'm not saying just because you bought that little fold-out that you're falling into that category. Everybody in here could read big, 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 big books, but you're buying this for somebody else. I know. Um, however, so what can we say about this? One thing I think we need to recognize is people who criticize us, specifically people who criticize the Bible, you can just about guarantee have not read it. Just kind of, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. We might assume that people don't read the Bible, but that's not true. People. Christians engage the Bible differently than they do other books. I think whatever that engagement looks like, and I, I don't think engagement is the right way, it's not the best way for us to access the Bible. But, but we need to be reading it for ourselves because of this. This one of the studies, this was the best, one of the best studies, they actually drilled down drilled down to the respondents who said, oh yeah, 
I read the Bible often, regularly, and they drill down and say, would you explain exactly what that looks like? Many of them counted reading Barrett's scripture or Greg's scripture reading on the screen as reading the Bible for that week. That was it. They counted and so they looked like they were like, like on it. I just think churches and leaders need to embrace the challenge. I think, just like we have Southside 101 at least once a year, right? Don't we? Maybe twice a year. I think we need to, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to have at least once a year have a four-week, four or five-week class on how to read and study the Bible. Everybody rotates through it at some point. I mean, you know, it's a downstairs class. What are down there? 15, 20 seats, you know. I mean, that is not too much. I don't think. How to read and study the Bible? That's how leaders help us get into the Word, figure out how to do it. All right. If, if, there was, if there was ever a hobby for us, it might be this fourth point. So, so, I'm, um, so I'm 71, so I've been around a while, not a long time. I'm only about middle-aged. <laughs> but I have prof- I have deep, long-standing memories of sitting in the sanctuary, sitting in worship, and hearing the snap of the matzah bread and big pieces were broken into smaller ones. And I remember the clink of the glass communion cups as people put them back into the tray as they went. And I remember the sound of hundreds of thin sheets of paper simultaneously being ruffled as people looked up texts as they were announced from the pulpit. It was akin to the Spirit of God moving across the room. You know what I hear now? I don't hear anything. When I was when I was saturated in those sounds, I felt like I was in a community. Everybody was doing what I was doing. Now I just don't know. We become people of the screen, for better or for worse. Absolutely, I agree. Bible apps, digital versions mean you can take the Bible anywhere and read it on the go. That is a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, I have two thoughts. Two thoughts. There have some been some real interesting studies in K through 12. Uh, um, studies have shown that the retention rate of students in that bracket are still better when they read off the printing page than when they read off the screen. It's just it's just a fact. The second thing. When you're sitting in worship, and you're in the auditorium, and the only thing you have in your lap, the only thing you have in your hands, is a hard copy Bible. And if you could become bored or distracted, all you can do is read a different passage. <laughs> Follow the cross-references. Work on your memory work. But if you're reading from a digital device, you can check the weather. You can check the lunch menu, your messages, your bank statements. You can fact check the preacher. 
<laughs> Distraction with digital devices means you leave the room in which God's word is being disclosed and discussed. That's what that means. I'm a big proponent of bringing the Bible. All right, tip point. I just made this up. Power of 1%, power of 99%. This is a great question. Why do we read books and why do we come to this class if we can't remember what we read and we can't remember from week to week what was taught last week? Why even bother? So let's talk about the 1%. This, uh, I found, in 1981, John Piper, many of you know who John Piper is. He was pastor at Bethlehem Baptist in the cities, Twin Cities. And uh, he was giving, he was talking, isn't that right, Bethlehem Baptist? He was talking to Sunday school teachers who were discouraged that their one hour with their students every Sunday morning was having no effect since the students were watching TV all the rest of the week. And he said this. It took me a long time to kind of find this in records, but it took me a while to find this. He said, what changes a life is a new glimpse into reality of truth or some powerful challenge that comes to us or some resolution of a long-standing dilemma we've had. And most of those, the insight, the challenge, the resolution are usually embodied in a very short little space, a paragraph or a sentence, and whammo, it hits home and we remember it and it affects us for our whole life long. So here's the take home. Remembering everything you've read isn't the main goal. A well-crafted, powerful sentence surely makes the other 99.99% worthwhile. And the same is true for sermons and Bible classes, right? There's a hook. It's in there. It's great. It's worth the price of admission. Is it reasonable for people to remember all the, the outline and all the salient points? No. If even one thing stands out, isn't that enough? Maybe yes. And maybe no. That takes us to the 99%. This is from Austin Carey. Austin Carey distills, distilled down beautifully what I've often kind of felt. He writes, the primary purpose of reading is not to be able to consciously recall what we have read. It is to constantly keep refining the lens through which we see reality. Even though we don't remember 99% of what we've read, it still gets inside us in ways we're unaware of and in depths we don't know we have. It still enriches our filter, even when we don't realize it's happening. You cannot have a class without quoting C.S. Lewis. This is one of my favorite ones. Those of us who've been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being which we owe to authors. The man who is contented to be only himself and therefore less than himself is in prison. Lewis writes, my own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through the eyes of others. So what is it? Yep, you can read and hope to encounter that one sentence. But encountering all the other sentences, 
It's going to change you. It's going to shape you and form your outlook. It enhances your filter. Gives you knowledge and insight or reverberate in your mind, giving you measures of wisdom and breadth you otherwise would not have had. That is why you read the Bible. That is why you read good literature. Last one. Your relationship to the Bible. This is Psalm 1 in the New Century Version. Happy are those who don't listen to the wicked, who don't go where sinners go, who don't do what evil people do. They love the Lord's teachings. They think about those teachings day and night. They're strong, like a tree planted by a river. The tree produces fruit in its season. The leaves don't die. Everything they do is succeed. Wicked people are not like that. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. So the wicked won't escape God's punishment. Sinners will not worship with God's people. This is because the Lord takes care of his people, that the wicked will be destroyed. The book of Psalms, from front to back, describes two types of people, the righteous and the wicked. Righteous is compared to a tree, firmly rooted, well-watered, flourishing, wicked person is blown away like chaff. These are frequent themes in Scripture. Jesus talks about identifying good and bad trees by their fruit. Jesus also discusses the righteous who's traveling the more difficult path that he calls the narrow way. He goes on to say the wicked are those who take the easy and wide road to destruction. All those metaphors imply a choice. Will you follow the way of the righteous that leads to life, or be counted among the wicked who will not last? The choice appears obvious. Only a fool would choose the path leading to destruction. If that's true, why does Jesus say so many people fail to make the logical choice? Our modern bias primarily views people as rational creatures that make the right decision if provided the right information. But Psalm 1 reveals that what separates the righteous and wicked isn't intelligence, knowledge, or rationality. The righteous person delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. It's a profound truth we often overlook. The difference between righteous and wicked is not what they know, but what they love. In our post-enlightenment age, which exalts the intellect, we assume knowledge is the necessary ingredient to solve any problem and make every decision. We often assume that merely teaching God's law, law will result in people following it. While knowledge matters, there's a more foundational element that's often overlooked. Psalm 1 recognized that often our affections determine our choices and our choices determine our destiny. It's the heart, not the head, that guides us so often through this world. The righteous is not the person who knows a lot about God, but the person who delights in God and by extension, His Word to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all your many blessings to us. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for Jesus, the living word. Father, we commit ourselves, we commit ourselves to knowing you more and more. And we will do that any way we can. 
Father, I pray for every person, every family in this room. Uh, may your spirit uh, be impactful for us this day and this week. In Jesus' name.